The other night, Kathy and I came in the door after going to supper, and the occasion for this was that we had just celebrated on October the 8th, our 27th year from the time we went on our first date. I was three, she was two, we played blocks together. <laughs> I'm very happy about that, that for these 27 years. And we came in, and my mother had been watching our children, and she was looking up on the interwebs to find a song that was on a television show that was a deep sort of spiritual practice for me as a child. I was primarily formed emotionally by three practices after you know school and sports and stuff. Uh, watching a terrible Atlanta Braves baseball, inhabiting the world of Hazard County with Bo and Luke Duke, and hanging out with Lou Ferrigno and Bruce Banner in the late 70s, early 80s television program, The Incredible Hulk. And she was trying to find, I don't know why, the theme song that they used to play at the beginning, when she, I mean at the end. And when she mentioned this theme song, I instantly knew. I haven't seen this in 30 years. And I was hearkened back to this emotional tumult it created in me every single week as a seven-year-old. Don't you hear the haunt in there? My mouth's dry. <laughs> My mouth's too dry to do it all. There was this song. It was actually called the Lonely Man theme. That's a little heavy-handed, isn't it, composer guy? But what would happen at the end of every episode when Bruce Banner would have to move on to the next town? Always anonymous, always alone, always homeless, living with a deep, dark secret that whenever he got really mad, you wouldn't like him when he's mad, he would turn into Lou Ferrigno, who was like a Arnold Schwarzenegger who, who, who was better. And he would be hitchhiking to the next town with this secret, accused of murder, on the run, and they would play this haunting music, single notes on a piano alone. And apparently I would say to my mother with regularity, why do they have to make it so sad? I was a very emotionally intelligent child. Why do they have to make it so sad? And it seems to me as we've been talking about prayer that that is a question that comes up a lot in the Christian life in general, in prayer in particular. And the psalmist is wrestling and bumping up against that reality right there. The question, which presents itself in a number of different forms, but could be summarized in this concise form, why does it have to be so sad? Why does it have to seem like God's promises are not at all being realized in my life. Why does it seem like the opposite of what I asked for is happening? 
Why does it seem like everything's falling apart? Why does it seem like the people that love you best are treated the worst? You know, St. Teresa of Avila is reported to have said, if this is how you treat your friends, O Lord, then it's no wonder that you have so few of them. Why does it have to be so sad? And I like it that Asaph here in Psalm 73 gives us this great psalm where he is dealing with this question, really. What do we do when it's so sad? When we pray and it's as if nothing's happening. It's as if the ceiling is the limit to our prayers and they bounce right off. What do we do then? Surely, he says, God is good to Israel, to his people, his community of faith. We believe the church is the the fulfillment of Israel. We are Israel, the new Israel. Surely God is good to his church, to those who are pure in heart. Kierkegaard once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. He's wrestling already. Why is it the case that the people who have said, Lord, inasmuch as we are able, we want you, not ourselves, to be the center of our lives. Like a giant tree growing up in the middle of the living room of our house, we want to take you into account in every moment, in every way. We want to order our lives around you instead of asking you to order your life around us. That's what characterizes the people of God, theoretically, right? That's what we're aiming for. Surely you're good to us, right? But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. It seemed to me that I was standing on a giant sinkhole like I was standing in Florida. I love Florida. We lived there once. Florida, never mind. It's a lovely state built on sand. And so I felt like I was slipping, like reality was coming out from underneath me. And I started to envy the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And before we jump more into that, I'll just pause and say, here's the first point I want you to realize. We're thinking about prayer and we're answering this question, why is it so sad? Here's one of the things that Asaph demonstrates to us in his prayer, is that praying is really not done by recipe, it's really a relationship. Prayer is something that isn't going to work according to recipe. It is about a relationship. It's very important to remember that because it is easy for us to imagine, as Asaph is imagining, that if we do certain things, if we pray in certain ways, if we live in certain ways, if we have certain faith commitments, then certain things will automatically be the case. That's why he's confused. I thought, God, that if we were your people, the flock of your care, the sheep of your pasture, that we would be remembered and people who forgot you would be forgotten. But it seems to me that people who forget you, who walk around with an extended middle finger to you or just cavalierly presuppose that you're not around, they actually get treated quite well. And your friends get treated like dung. 
this doesn't seem right. It doesn't accord with any sort of formula that I have come to expect. But you see, that's why when it comes to prayer, when it comes to talking to God, asking of Him, being in His presence, you have to realize that this thing isn't going to work according to recipe. You may have heard throughout your life there are certain things you ought to do in prayer. You need to make sure you're adoring God, confessing your sins, giving thanksgiving. You've been taught acts, right? That helped me a lot. I'm so thankful to be taught that substructure, that structure, that heuristic device, they might say, for praying. It's a wonderful thing. But if you think that if you just manage to pray the right way, then you will get the right result, you're not talking about any sort of relationship that you know about. You're talking about a Coke machine. You're talking about a recipe that if you do it the right way each time, then things will turn out the right way. I, uh, Beth Warren, I mean Marshall Brock, who read just now, wrote this compelling thing. I haven't asked for his permission to use it. Do you, do you mind, Marshall? Do you mind? So he wrote this when I asked some of you, what's the most frustrating thing to you about prayer? And he, he wrote this in response, because of course he wouldn't just tell me a thing he was frustrated about. He wrote this extended um, metaphor. What if, he says, you were learning to prepare your grandmother's famous blackberry cobbler? There's a list of ingredients and an ordered set of steps. Blackberries, flour, oats, sugar, butter, brown sugar, vanilla, preheat the oven to 400 degrees, grease the pie dish, cook till golden brown, etc. But what if within these steps there were the following steps to consider? Step five, after mixing the dough, look at it. Tell it 25 times what wonderful dough it is. You are dough. I am recognizing that you are dough. I cannot believe what dough you are. Or step eight. Now that you've greased the pie dish, pause. Sit quietly and ask the Crisco to make the cobbler flaky light and to make the food separate nicely from the dish. Be certain that you have asked it in the correct manner. You can ask it silently or out loud, but out loud will probably work better. Step 12, don't rush it. Before placing the dish in the oven, look over what you've done. Keep looking at it. Maybe hover your hands over the dish. Keep doing this until you've done it sufficiently. I love that line. Keep doing it until you've done it sufficiently. If you put the pie in before you've done this sufficiently, it might be fine or it might not. He goes on and on. It's an extended metaphor. It's fantastic. It's easy because of the things we've heard, because of the kind of people we are, to imagine that, that there are a lot of different steps and a lot of formulas and a lot of particularities that must be achieved in order to pray well. And if you start to imagine that you're, that you're somehow able to manipulate God if you praise Him enough times or you adore Him sufficiently or you fast enough, if you think there's a one-to-one correspondence, if I do A, B, and C, then I will get the pie that I want. You will be constantly confounded. Because you're not praying a recipe, 
You're dealing with the sovereign Lord of the universe who has said, you are my children and I'm your father. And so one of the things that you need to learn to realize is that when you hit these moments where you say, why is it so sad? Like Asaph here, why is it so sad? Why is God so far off? Why is he not answering? It's as if the sadness is a personal courier from God to say, you don't know what you really want. You don't know what you really need, but you need to be listened to. You're invited to come and hash it out with me. You're invited to come and hash it out with me. And that is what is happening to Asaph here. He is working through this. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was filled with this sense that they've got what I should have. I'm sad because they're happy. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're the kind of people when they eat a bunch of Twinkies, their body, when they, get, they gain weight, it looks like they've been doing CrossFit. Me, when I look at a donut, I get another chin. This isn't fair. They're free from burdens common to man. They get to marry models and it looks like on their head they're wearing the, the scalp hide of a Pekingese dog. They are not plagued by human ills. Think about that one. for That's a way, Homer. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're all tatted up with superiority. They clothe themselves with violence. They do whatever they want. It seems as if everything's going their way. Because things have gone their way, they have come to believe that they are therefore superior to everyone else. There's no room for God in all their thoughts. They start to imagine, I'm pretty clever. I've gotten to where I am merely by the work of my hands. It's only my discipline. That's why I'm so healthy. It's only by self-will. It's only by my resolve. I am the cause of me. I am the center of me. I am the determiner for me. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And he says, all this was oppressive to me. It was just simply oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. But see, the thing is, is the oppression, the fact that this seems so unjust and so unfair and so not right and so out of accord with how he understood that God should be working made him say, okay, I guess some recipe doesn't work, but what I need to do is I need to come into the place where God is, to the sanctuary of God. We don't come into a temple anymore. The presence of God has been gone viral. We're told that the Spirit of God lives in us as believers, that we can approach the throne of grace, where Jesus sits, where God is at any time to find mercy Grace to help us in our time of need. And one of the things that you'll realize, and you've probably realized this in your own human relationships, is that sometimes what you need more than anything else in all the world is not, even though you think you do, it's not that you get that particular prayer answered. It's that you be well listened to. C.S. Lewis has said, we can ignore, I mean, we can endure being told no, but what we cannot endure is being ignored. A lot of you have interacted with this in relationships with a spouse, with your parents, with a boss, with a coach. 
And you realize how desperately difficult it is to hear someone's advice or to hear someone tell you no or to hear someone who's intent on doing something you don't want them to do if it doesn't feel like they've listened to you. If it doesn't feel like they're taking you into account. But if you do feel like you've been heard, if you do feel like they have let themselves be influenced by your fear, your concern, or your perspective, then it's much easier to not get your way. You may have seen this video. It has 11.5 trillion hits, I think. Okay, million. But surely some of you are among this number. In it, a couple is talking, or one member of the couple is talking. They're on a couch, the light is dim, they're in a living room, and you can tell you've entered into something that's rather serious. And the woman is saying to her husband, it's just that there's all this pressure. You know, and, and sometimes, she says with desperation in her voice, it just feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, literally feel it. And it's relentless. And as she turns sideways, the camera picks up on the fact that she has like a four-inch galvanized steel nail coming out of her forehead. This is a different kind of video we soon learn. She's got a nail in her forehead and she's saying it's relentless, the pressure so much. And I don't know if it's ever going to stop. I mean, that's what really worries me. I just don't know if it's ever going to stop. And her husband, terrified, says, yeah, well, but you know that you do have a nail in your head. And she says, it's not about the nail. (laughs) And he answers, are you sure? Because I bet if we got the nail out of there, and she says, stop trying to fix it. And he says, I'm... I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just trying to point out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when all I really need you to do is just listen. Well, he says, you see, I don't think that really is what you need. I think you just need to get the nail out of your... See, you can't even listen now. The man, terrified, exasperated, bewildered, says, okay, uh, fine, I I will listen. And so she continues then as she settles down into the listening that draws her words from her. It's just that sometimes it's just so achy. I, I don't know what it is. I'm not sleeping very well at night. Uh, all of my sweaters have snags in them, all of them. And as he listens to her, he finally at the end says, that sounds really hard. And she says, thank you. And they kiss and then they bonk heads with the nail. (laughs) It's perfect. It's a perfect and ingenious skit. And it demonstrates something, though, even when you got a nail in your head, even when something's altogether wrong, there's something about needing to know that you're heard. 
that you're listened to. A, a, a loved person feels listened to. And it's entirely possible, I urge you to consider, that one of the things that needs to happen when you find yourself saying, why does it have to be so sad, is that there may be desires in you that you don't know about. There may be solutions that you're proposing for your own life that you think will be the solution for you, that you demand will be the solution for you, but you don't know really. What you need to do is get into the presence of God and have a running internal dialogue with him to figure out what it is actually that you do need or that you do want or that you are about. And that's what happens here. So this is not a recipe. It's a relationship, and it's a relationship where whether you get what you want or not in prayer, you will get always what you need. But you've got to come into the presence of God. You've got to heed and, and respond to the invitation that sorrow hands over to you, that trouble, that injustice, that the lack of fairness, that envy that anger, that destruction hands over to you that says, come and spread it out before the Lord. And as you come, you'll remember this. It's not a recipe of a relationship. You'll remember this, that your feelings are not ultimate reality. It's important. Your feelings are not ultimate reality. Here's what he says. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them into ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You know what's happened? And it happens to every one of us, so I'm so glad it's here. Is that he has made an interpretation. He has had a take on reality. And like all of us, when the desire and the emotion is rather strong, when our reaction to something is rather intense, we tend to focus on one thing at the exclusion of everything else that we know and, and believe in. Anger, for instance. When he's angry at God and feeling embittered at the injustice, anger is a blinding emotion. All you can think about is your Grief, the injustice that has just happened to you. That's why people get so unreasonable when they're angry. That's why it's almost comical when you're not angry to watch somebody else get angry. Like, dude, because it seems so reasonable. Every time I get mad, it seems so perfectly reasonable to me. Of course I should scream and shout. I have been injured by the universe. What else would I do? He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you. See, what he realizes is that I actually let myself be led along by an interpretation that wasn't right. It was just part of reality that I was taking into account. I was taking into account the part of reality where I was the king of the universe. And I looked around and I saw how I was the sole and solitary case. That injustice had staked a claim right on my head. And I was the most pitiful soul there ever had been. While everything else was going well for everyone else. That's not fair. Now, we all do this when it comes to covetousness in some way, when we're wanting what others have. I don't know anybody in the midst of a self-pitying, covetous 
kind of um, party who would say, it's just not fair. I have so much more than all the people in the rest of the world. It's not fair. Why is God so good to me when he's not good to them? Nobody says that. I mean, every now and again somebody has that. But they, they feel guilty about it, not great. Most of the time what people do is they look around at people who have something that they think they need. And they feel justified. God is ripping me off. God doesn't care about me. He's not answering my prayer the way he should. It's not fair. You always compare up. You don't compare down. Why is everything so good for them and not for me? Why do they have what I wish I had so much? And if you are not careful, you will be led along into a very lonesome road. Contained in the misery and gloomy dungeon of yourself. Stuck with these emotions that you think, this is the adequate and accurate take on reality. This is it. There is nothing else to life. The way I have determined it, the way I have interpreted it, is right. But then you come into the sanctuary of God and you might realize, oh, I've been a fool. I haven't considered half of it. I haven't considered half of this whole religion that I'm saying I believe in. And he's looking at other people and he's saying, God, it looks like now you are forgetting the people that you should be remembering and you're remembering the people you should be forgetting. He starts to realize, oh, wait, wait, wait. We're involved in a long story here. And we're just in the prologue. We're involved in a rather long story that involves eternity. Your life matters. People will be held to account. And people who want to be left alone by God are going to be. And people who want to be remembered by God are going to be healingly. See, sometimes we wonder when these emotions are so strong, we start to wonder, am I crazy? Is all this stuff we believe just nuts? And we live in a historical, cultural moment where it is more easy, I think, to doubt than ever before. And other people have thought this too. Where plausibility of atheism is more recognized than ever before. It's the first time in human history that really smart people think it's really smart not to believe in God. Nobody has ever thought that before. And you can have moments where you think, am I an idiot for believing all this Jesus stuff? For believing that I'd talk to this resurrected Savior or whatever, and he answers prayers and he does stuff? Am I crazy to give up? To stay married? To give away money? To open up my life? To take in orphans? To, to not cheat on my taxes? To be honest? To put up with people, to forgive over and over even though I get hurt? Does it matter to do all that stuff? Because I believe in him? And it's easy to start to think, no, it couldn't possibly matter. Because the things in front of our face seem so real. And he seems so, well, like a fantasy. But what he realizes, the psalmist, when he comes into God's presence, he realizes, oh, all of that's going to get flipped. There will come a time when Jesus himself will be so real, so vivid. You know the double rainbow all the way? So vivid, so real. And that the people now 
the things now that seem so real, they will be swept away, he says, despised as if they were fantasies, like they were a dream. You see, there's going to be a reversal. Right now, we believe that God created Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ. No, I didn't say that was a historical um, uh, heresy I just committed because I misspoke. God did not create Jesus Christ. He's begotten, not created. We believe that through Jesus Christ, all things were created, things visible and invisible. Huh? We believe invisible things have been created and they exist. And one day... The curtain, the barrier of invisibility will be taken off and the invisible stuff will be more vivid and more real than anything we've ever seen. That's why C.S. Lewis can envision in The Great Divorce all of hell being contained. All of hell and all the wicked who are judged. All the people who said to God, leave me alone. And he says, all right then. In a crack in the sidewalk of heaven. Heaven is so real, so sturdy, so big, so brilliant, so beautiful, so magnificent, so concrete in its reality that the the fantasy, the dream of the wicked in hell can fit in a crack in the sidewalk. You start to realize when you come into prayer, you start to realize the fullness of reality. There's more to it than you know. And that's this last point. When you pray, you think sometimes, I need more faith. I need faith to pray. I don't have enough faith to pray. You don't have faith and then go pray. You get faith when you pray. Do you understand this? Dave Hansen has said this well. And that is what has happened. This Asaph, when he comes into the sanctuary of God, he starts to have his faith emboldened. He starts to realize, oh yeah, I believe that you're the sovereign Lord. Oh yeah, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. In other words, he's realizing as he comes into prayer, his faith meter starts to well up. He starts to get charged. He starts to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, I believe this stuff. My life is not merely about the acquisition of goods and the acquiring of a good name. My life is not merely about the pursuit of more comforts for myself. My life is bigger. I belong to the sovereign Lord. And it is good to be near him. In fact, I've been thinking I want all this stuff, but really, 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 really what I want. I don't just want McDonald's to have breakfast all day. I want... I want God. If I really am honest about it and I really get my wits about me, what I realize is I need to be satisfied by the love that fuels the sun. So I need to draw near to him. And the promise, James says, is draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Submit yourselves to him. Flee the devil and the devil will flee from you. There's a lot about prayer that just involves this submission like, I don't know what's best for me. How would I really know what's best for me? We walk around assuming we know what's best. We don't. Taylor has a Spanish teacher who, who does this awesome thing when they come up against a grammatical or syntactical rule that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't fall in accordance with the normal rules. And if you've studied language of any sort, we have we got a million of those in English. He just tells them, you must submit to Spanish. And he has the whole class say, Oh, Espanol! Oh, Espanol! You can use that, Sandy, if you need. And he's just trying to teach them, if you're going to learn this language, you have got to submit to some rules you don't understand. 
This is just the rule. If you want to play in this world, you've got to submit to it. And we say, oh, sovereign Lord, you know what's best for me. I don't. And if I look back on my life, I think there are times when I thought if I had a pair of suede Sebagos, my life would be fixed. And when I got out of college, I thought if I got myself a Jeep, if I had a new Jeep, everything about my life, all my insecurities, all my uncertainties about the future, all the fragility of my faith, everything about it would be fixed. So I found myself sitting there in Nashville after having test driven a Jeep Sahara something or something. And a guy saying to me as he slid the price over there to me. And I looked at it. I've been saving money. I was about to fulfill my life with a Jeep. No more red Nissan Sentra pink when it's dry. I looked at it and I said, well, that's a lot of money. I think I need to think about it. He said, no, buddy. Come on, just jump right in. And I ran away. He didn't realize that that was all I needed to hear. No, buddy, just jump right in. But see, I'm, I'm an idiot. I sometimes, I know none of you ever would do this, but I sometimes think if I can just get God to do what I want, that will fix me. That will heal me. That will change me. I know how to mend myself. I just need God to comply with my wishes. And praise be to Jesus Christ that he says sometimes you're an idiot. You don't know. You don't know what's best for you. Even the things that make you groan can become elements for gratitude because you can start to see them as invitations to say, oh yeah, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It is good for me to be near the sovereign Lord. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's why God came because he knew that's what you needed. I'll close with this. This is the most you'll ever hear me talk about superheroes. I don't know anything about superheroes, but I have children and I have Corby. I had to do it. Sorry. I went to the Young Life. I went to the Young Life Northwest Georgia Banquet. It was fantastic. Marcus was there and it was a superhero theme. And I kept hearing all this stuff. And, and then my mom was playing stuff from the Hulk. And I, ah. But somebody told me I needed one of our deacons. I won't mention his name, but Joel was saying, You have got to watch Daredevil. It's magnificent. It's fantastic. And Corby mentions Daredevil. And Daredevil is a very plausible thing, like all the hero stuff. He's a, he's a blind lawyer who operates within Matt Murdock. He operates within the confines of the legal system to you know, execute justice for the poor and oppressed and such as this through the courts during the day. But at night, he's a masked one-man vigilante who's, though he is blind, yet he sees. <laughs> and so he's able to dodge bullets and hatchets and, and mend the wounded and, and fly, I guess, and jump, do a lot of kind of judo kicks. 720s and things in the air. Seven, like Two and three roundabouts all at once. It's like a helicopter. I don't understand, but it's fascinating and fantastic and it's very gruesome and I don't recommend you watch it if you have a stomach. <laughs> but there's this one scene. This lady, Claire. She's been abducted because she's friends with Murdoch and the masked man. And she's at the villainous hands of the Russians, always the Russians. She's been beaten. She's bleeding. She's bruised. They've got a baseball bat knocking out windows over her head. She is terrified, cowering, alone. And they're demanding, tell us his name. What is his name? And she doesn't know. She earnestly doesn't know his name. 
I mean, they don't tell their names. They're superheroes. And so she's terrified. She thinks she's going to die. She's cowering. She couldn't be more alone. Suddenly the lights go out in this garage. That's her signal. Because the daredevil, he don't need no light. Because to him, the darkness is as light. And suddenly, these 42 armed men, just the odds that he likes, they start disappearing one by one. And suddenly, they're all like neatly tied up in a bow and dead. But before all that happens, as soon as the lights go out, as soon as she's in the dark, as soon as nothing about her situation has changed physically, she's still in pain, she's still bleeding, she's still bruised, she's still cowering, her life is still in danger, she thinks. She knows the light has gone out, she deduces what's happening, she says, you want to know his name? With boldness. Why don't you ask him for yourself? Because she realizes... Now, the daredevil's on the scene and everything's changed. But nothing about her body changed, nothing about her pain changed, but everything had changed because his presence was there. She could be bold, she could make it through, she knew she was going to be okay. Christianity says, Flannery O'Connor is not about an electric blanket. We don't use electric blankets anymore. It's not just about getting warm and cozy. It's about a cross. And Christians are going to bear a cross. You're going to have trouble and insult and hardship and persecution in your life. And one of the best things about prayer is that your faith is going to get emboldened. You're going to realize your emotions are not the full story of reality. That you're involved not in some kind of recipe thing, but in a relationship. In a relationship that you will come to realize if you give yourself in prayer more and more, if you have this running inner dialogue with God more and more, you are going to find out if God's on the scene of your life, that though nothing changes sometimes in your life, everything can change. And then you won't be so distraught walking the lonely man road saying, Why is it so sad? But you might have someone who meets you in your sadness. Someone who meets you in your dismay. And you can be okay again. Amen.